All right, church, is this working here? Have we got this uh, up and running? Good. We have a, um, a rule here at the church that uh, we started recently when Pastor John came that he has a special headset that's only for him and no one can use it. That way nothing, gets, not, nothing damages it and gets in the way. Uh, we broke the rules this morning and I'm wearing his headset. So shh, don't say anything. Well, the gospel needs to get preached, so we're going to make it work. If, would you pray with me? I need some prayer. Father God, I just pray that um, you would be with this church as we hear your word this morning. I pray that you would be with me, that you would speak your words, that they not be mine, but the words be yours. Just pray for all parts of this message, and Father, just pray for folks who are, who are going through a few things in life, that this message might just, might just meet them where they're at. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, there's a memo. I don't know if you've gotten it. It's been all over the world. Christmas is over. For some of you, I heard that. Yes. For some of you, you, can't, you couldn't wait for it to be over. It's, uh, you know, you, you dreaded going up in the attic and getting all that junk and bringing it down and setting everything up. And then now, even still, it's still sitting all over your house because you, you can't bring yourself to gather all that stuff up and haul it back up to the attic again. Or maybe you're like me. I love Christmas. I miss it already. It's my favorite holiday. I love the music. I love all the movies we get them out. I love that radio station that plays nothing but Christmas songs. And uh, I, I like the lights. We decorated the entire inside of our house. If you helped us move to Salinas from Prunedale, if you were part of that group, you saw that a good portion of our moving truck was nothing but green and red totes because we have a ton of Christmas decorations. We decorated the inside of our house even though nobody was coming to our house this year and we knew that. We were going everywhere else for Christmas, but we still, we decorated the heck out of the place. Uh, I love Christmas and it's over. Seasonal transitions are strange. Um, if you, I don't know if you've noticed that. The transition from Christmas to the New Year is different from the other transitions of the other seasons. You know, um, Easter kind of seems to sort of fades in the summer. And then Halloween just kind of transitioned into Thanksgiving, and Thanksgiving kind of bleeds into Christmas. But then Christmas to the new year, it's just kind of a jolt. It drops. You kind of drop out of Christmas into the new year. And it can be difficult. It can be hard to make this transition sometimes. It's, um, you know, we hear peace on earth and goodwill to all mankind all December, and come January we hear, where's the peace? Where's that goodwill? I'm not seeing it. I turn the radio, I don't hear it. I turn the TV, I don't see it. I walk around outside. I'm not experiencing it, even sometimes in church. I'm not necessarily getting the peace on earth and goodwill to all mankind thing. And uh, so, so we have this transition where December's warm hope gets eclipsed by January's harsh realities. Peace on earth and goodwill to mankind. What's wrong with this picture? Well, first of all, let me just make something very clear. We need to know what that angel at Bethlehem actually said. Peace on earth and goodwill to mankind. We, we see that all over our uh, Christmas cards. It's an ancient rendering of the text. But if you look at your Bibles today, I think you'll notice that modern translations with more accurate readings are uh, a little different than you remember. Check it out. Luke chapter 2, verse 14. 
It says, Glory to God in the highest. This is the angel over Bethlehem. And on earth, peace among those with whom God is pleased. That's in your pew Bibles in front of you, the ESV. Or in the NIV, a lot of you have that. It'll be a little bit different, but pretty much the same. Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace on those whom His favor rests. Well, wait a minute. That's not how I remember it. It's peace on earth and goodwill to all mankind, right? Who is this whom God's favor rests? Or who are these people with whom God is pleased? It's not everybody. So who are these exclusive groups? Well, to get the answer to that, we've got to go to another text. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says this, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would dwell near to God must believe that He exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. So those who are faithful are the ones that please God. The ones who call themselves Christ followers, the people who believe and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved, those are the ones with whom God is pleased. Those are the ones that the angel was talking to. But still, I don't know about you, I call myself a Christ follower, and I... I don't see a whole lot of peace on earth, and I don't experience a whole lot of goodwill, it seems like. Just this past year, I've experienced people in my life who have dealt with some pretty serious illnesses, are still dealing with them. Some have died. Some have gotten divorced. Some have lost their jobs. Some are dealing with a bankruptcy. They're financially ruined. Some are having major issues with their kids. And that's just in the past year among Christ followers that I have a relationship with right here in this church body. It's not a very big sample. And yet, all that's going on. i got to say, we're Christ followers. Where's the peace? Where's the goodwill? We go from this December advent of just excitement about, about God at work, and then here we are in January looking at a new year, making resolutions. Some of us have already blown off. Lorraine showed up with a box of donuts this morning. She says, well, if I can't hold my resolution, I'm going to make all of you wreck your resolutions too. She brought a big box of donuts for everybody. And thank you, Lorraine. Appreciate that. Real quick, a word about last week's sermon. I listened to it online. Pastor John preached an amazing message last week about forgiveness. And if you're somebody who's been on the edge, on the fence about being a Christ follower, I encourage you, if you didn't listen to it last week, get online and listen to it. John preached about God's forgiveness of sin and how we can get right again with God because of Jesus Christ's death on that cross and then his resurrection. He made a way for us to get right again with God. And not only that, John also talked about how the Bible says that God holds our sins against us no more. Actually, the scripture says he forgets them, but obviously God isn't forgetting things. That would be scary to have a forgetful God. But it means, in a legal sense, he doesn't hold them against you anymore. You're free if you choose to be one of the ones who who faithfully believe in God and, and seek to be in his presence. There is a belief that's common among the Christian church today, especially in America, that because I believe in God... God owes me a life that is peaceful and without pain. Church, let me tell you, that is a false gospel. 
That will lead you astray every time because if that's back to peace on earth all the time, rainbows and butterflies, I may have goodwill all the time, nothing bad will ever happen in my life, and then something comes up and you think, oh, well then God must not be real because I was expecting this transactional relationship that he was going to give me a life that is free from pain all the time. Church, that's not, that's not what the Bible says. We're not paying attention if that's what you think it says. That's not, what you're, that's not what you should be hearing when you're praying to God. That's definitely not what we're preaching from this pulpit. God's hope, God's peace, church, hear this. God's peace comes not instead of times of pain, but during times of pain. And so I want to kind of tag team with Pastor John's message last week of, of, of opening the door and saying, here's how you can become a Christ follower. And I want to kind of follow up. What's, what's after that? What's next? Because I know nobody told me when I gave my life to Christ as a teenager that, that it wouldn't be rainbows and butterflies. I think I sort of thought that as soon as I made that prayer, it was all going to work everything out. I was going to pass every test. I was going to have good friends. I was never going to have trouble. My parents would somehow, I would relate well with them and, and just everything would be good. I can tell you, it, it was hard for me to reconcile the fact that I still, as a Christian believer, was still living in a fallen world filled with fallen people doing fallen things every fallen day. <laughs> and that's a hard reality. So, to make this point, I want us to go to a really fun book. We're going to go in the book of Lamentations this morning. I'm betting that's not a book many of you spent much time in. It's actually a very odd book. First of all, a little bit of background. Um, Jews read this book every year on one day called the 9th of Ab, A-B, which this year I believe it's, uh, I think it's going to be August 10th or 11th. On that day, observant Jews, they they will fast all day, they will read this book, which we believe to be written by Jeremiah, and It's essentially about Israel's 9-11, the worst event in Israel's history. The destruction of Israel and then taking it in captivity by Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar coming down, destroying Israel, and the Chaldean army looting everything and taking taking everybody back to Babylon for 70-something years. You might say, why is that the worst event in Israel's history? What about the Holocaust? Or or what about the the Egyptian captivity for 400-something years? And believe it or not, Jews still believe that this is the worst event in in Israel's history because for the 400 years in Egypt, they didn't actually have a land that was taken from them or destroyed. They didn't have a temple that was desecrated. They didn't have that yet. And as long as they were building pyramids, the Egyptians could care less how they worshipped. So they still had their faith. And on the other hand, you had the Holocaust, a terrible experience. And yet, they didn't have a land then either that could be destroyed. And, uh, And so they still believe, Jews believe that this event... The Babylonian captivity is the worst thing ever in the history of the Jewish people, even still today. In fact, six books in the Old Testament deal just on that one event. Lamentations is probably the strangest of those books. Um, First of all, it's not chronological. It's alphabetical, according to the Jewish uh, alphabet. It's it's not a good narrative. It's more of a... um, it's more of a, an anthology of poems, of emotional, I don't know, I guess you call it emotional vomit. They just kind of 
Jeremiah just throws all this stuff out there. It's very depressing, very difficult. There are some things that he lists that happened during that event more than once, and other things that are kind of notable never make it in this book. So it's not a very good historical book. And so that's why I think a lot of folks don't get into it, and Jews only read it once a year. It's kind of an odd book. And the, um, the name is not actually Lamentation. Did you know that? That's an English edition we made to it. The name of this book in Hebrew is actually How, H-O-W. And not like, how about this or how about that? It's actually more of a cry of anguish. How, oh God, how could this be? How could this be allowed to happen? How could these things befall us? And so it's kind of this tortured cry, or we might say a lament, there, that's how we get the name Lamentation. Somebody kind of tacked that on there because just having the name How seemed a little confusing, so they wanted to be very clear about it. And let's just take a look at it. Go to Lamentations chapter 1. Go to verse 1. Let's just take a look at this strange book that most of us don't touch often. The very first word starts with the name of the book. How lonely sits the city of Jerusalem that was full of people. How, like a widow, has she become she who is great among the nations. Jerusalem, who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. Jerusalem weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah, the nation, the kingdom, has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. Judah dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of distress. The roads to Zion uh, for no, the roads to Zion mourn for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been kidnapped, and she herself suffers bitterly. And you know we'll just stop right there because after this it starts to get a little depressing. You know what? It, go to the end. It doesn't get much better. Go to chapter 5, the very end. Let's look at the very last passage of this book, starting verse 19. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Hey, that sounds much better, right? Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Um, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. The end. Seriously, that's how the book ends. Unless you're ticked with us, finished. Can you imagine praying like that? A prayer of restoration. That's what that is, a prayer of restoration. You say, Lord, please restore me. Unless you're mad at me. Amen. Or, Lord, please help me with this decision and know the right path I should take in my life. Unless you don't like me. Amen. I mean, that's, this, is, this book is nuts. And yet, in the midst of this depressing plate of scrambled eggs, of misery, is, I think, one of the most beautiful and amazing verses in the entire Bible. Chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. Let's take a look at that. That's where we're going to be this morning. Start in verse 19. Give a little context here. God, remember my afflictions and my wandering. 
the wormwood and the gall. By the way, wormwood is this wood that has all these little holes torn into it. It looks like a worm ate its way through. In the Old Testament, wormwood is considered to be a curse. In the New Testament, it's only mentioned once. It's in Revelation, and it has to do with Satan who gets defeated and cast down among the stars, and his name is Wormwood. Gall is the bile you have in you, the bile duct. And so, you know, when you throw up and you got that, that acid that burns, that terrible taste you want to get it out of your mouth, that's gall. So, remember my afflictions and my wanderings, God, the Wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it, and my soul is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. How about that? Listen, peace on earth and goodwill comes to those who believe and it comes not instead of times of pain, it comes during times of pain. And, and here it is. Because you know what's interesting is that there's a couple things I want to point out about this passage. First of all, it's in the middle. It's in the midst of mayhem we find this, this great passage. It's in the middle of the book, exact middle. It seems like it'd be a great thing to put that passage right in the beginning and, uh, you know, it's a great way to start things with that, you know, uh, 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 you know, his steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Let's start with that. No, we read that. That's not how it starts. Or it seems like an even great way to put it in the end. What a great way to end that book. It's a bit of hope and mercies, new mercies every morning. No, we read that. That's not how it ends. Jeremiah puts it right smack dab in the middle. And I believe, and this is just this is my opinion here. I think God did that on purpose. I believe God put this passage of hope right exactly in the middle of all this stuff that's going on in the worst event in Israel's history because that's the way it is in life. That we don't get the we don't get to avoid the hard stuff as a Christian. We don't get to uh, to uh, uh, escape the difficult times just because you're a believer. I used to have this feeling when I was younger, I think all of us have had this in some format, this idea that it's rough taking off in life, as if you were in an airplane, but at some point we mature in life, we hit this cruising altitude where there's no more turbulence and it's smooth sailing for the rest of your life. But then as you go on in life, you realize, hmm, no, not so much. There's turbulence even at cruising altitude. And what is it we know about turbulence? The first sign of turbulence is what? Turbulence. All of a sudden you're in it. Jeremiah, I believe, he's highlighting that life back then is pretty much like life today. That life is one never-ending series of adjusting to things unplanned. Oh, I didn't plan for that. Oh, I wasn't prepared for this. I, no, I didn't know that was coming. I, I, didn't, I didn't set aside uh, 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 something for that. Jeremiah, when he talks about um, this Babylonian captivity, he paints a, paints a pretty bleak picture here. He says things like uh, people are lying in the streets weeping because there was nothing else to do. 
There's nothing to rebuild. There's nothing to restore. There's nothing to save. Nothing to scavenge. There's no defense to mount. There's no resistance to have. All people can do is just lie in the streets and weep until they die. He even talks about how the, 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 the famine and the starvation was so great that parents were reduced to becoming cannibals and ate their own kids. That really happened. And he's saying, listen, we didn't plan for that. We didn't plan for all these things coming. And yet in the middle of all of this, in the middle of this, I guess you could call it turbulence of the most severe form, he puts this passage about new mercies. Listen, as Christians, we don't get to avoid the valleys of life. We don't get airlifted from mountain peak to mountain peak. We go through all of them. I believe God has us go through all of them because we're going to encounter lost people in those valleys and then we get to invite them to come with us, come out of that, to get to a place that's closer to God. When all that man has is wiped away, Jeremiah shows us, we find a God who is still at work. That's hard to believe when things are happening in our life, that God is still at work. The second thing I notice in this passage is how God loves the unlovable. Do you see that? It says His mercy never ceases. They never come to an end. This word, mercy, is kased. No, that wasn't my microphone making noise. It's actually like that. Said you have to say it like you're clearing phlegm out of your throat. It's the way it's the way it's said. It, it it's commonly translated in scripture as loving kindness. This said love. It's actually uh, the actual translation means uh, uh, loyal love or covenant love. It's a contractual love, which I don't know about you. That sounds a little sterile to me, a little commercial. But it's a fascinating kind of a love that God has for us. Because unlike other kinds of love that we experience, this one is not affected by one of the parties being kind of unlovable. Think about it. Amorous love. A guy and a girl meet. They fall in love. They enjoy being in life together until one of them starts acting a little unlovable and it breaks it. Or take phileo, brotherly love. And then we have two people, they're friends, they enjoy being in fellowship with one another, they make each other laugh, they enjoy doing things together until one of them or the other does something that is unlovable and friendship is broken. Even this agape love that we talk about in church, this Christian love, this love that we have for one another as as families of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ, unfortunately, that gets broken when one or the other of us kind of starts acting unloving. We've noticed that. Somebody gossips, somebody says a hard word, somebody does something you don't like, and it gets broken all the time. But said love never gets broken. It's a contract made and signed and sealed by God's own lips, which is incredibly unbreakable. He promises to love us even when we are unlovable. That's that's one of the most amazing things about this passage right here in the middle of Lamentations. When they're going through something, when they feel like there can be no God. See what's going on around us? There can be no God. And you say, no, I'm here and I have said love for you. It's a triumphant mercy that God promises here. It triumphs over everything. Here's the deal. I, I don't know if I'm going to unveil, uh, unveil something that you wouldn't already know, but I can be very unlovable at times. It's true. I know it. I, I know you're surprised. I could be very unlovable to my wife. 
at times, to my daughter at times, to my friends, to my co-workers, to people around me, my family. There, I, I have a, I'm a very impatient person. I have, a, at times, a very short temper. And um, I can be very unloving, especially to God. And yet, his said love triumphs over that. There's an Irish preacher named C.H. McIntosh. I love this quote he has. It was in the late 1880s. He says, 10,000 mercies are forgotten in the presence of a single trifling moment. Let me read that again. 10,000 mercies are forgotten in the presence of a single trifling moment. How often we see that among Christ followers. How often I've seen that in my life. I sing, God is great, God is good, all glory and honor due to God, all the mercies he's done in my life. And then some piece of inconvenience jumps up in my life, and now I'm not even thinking about God. There's no more God is good, no more God is great. I'm just consumed with myself and what i got going on. There have been times where some piece of inconvenience, some momentary trifling moment has jumped up in my life. I've even found myself calling God's existence into question. Oh, what am I doing? What are we doing? Forgetting 10,000 mercies because of some trifling moment. Here's the thing, church. We need to drown out those trifling moments with God's triumphant mercies. We need to see this verse, hang on to it, and say, listen, enough with the inconveniences in my life. I know it's not good. We've got to work through it. But God's mercies are new every morning. I don't have to worry about that stuff. And this is just for me. Maybe you might find some value in it the way I do this, what's helped me through this. This is not in Scripture. This is my own personal belief on that. I believe that I need to know it, not feel it. That's been very helpful for me. To know God's love is triumphal, that uh, He loves the unlovable. To know it, not to feel it. Because here's the thing, guys. Feelings are, are fleeting, aren't they? I could have the most amazing worship service here in this church, hear the most amazing music, just fills my heart with joy and excitement, hear John preach a message that blows my mind, encounter some of you here in the church, have you say encouraging words to me. By the time I leave here, I am so excited, I can't wait to get in my car and drive and just share this with everybody I can run into. Anybody who gets to my path is going to get blasted with this love, this, this Jesus freak moment that I'm having. Then I get on the 101 and some guy cuts me off and like that is gone. <laughs> Isn't that how it is? Man. We can't live in the moment of feeling it. I think we got to get to a place where we just know it. Because that's the only thing that's going to sustain us in the times we don't feel it. We don't, we don't ditch church because we're not feeling it. That's silly. We'll almost never be in church. Feelings fade fast. The last interesting thing I see in this passage is what I call the best part of waking up. You've all heard the slogan, the best part of waking up is what? There you go, church. I'm going to disagree with you. I'm going to share just a little bit of heresy, if you're ready, just a little bit. It's more heresy in my household than it is in this house. My wife doesn't know I'm about to call her out, but here it is. My wife is a straight-up addict of coffee. It's frightening. It really is. She doesn't get it. Oh, man, it's not good. We have, she is the only human in our, fa- in our house, and most of my family, who drinks coffee, and yet we have like 80 coffee mugs. 
I don't get that. She has shirts that are about coffee. She loves memes that are about coffee. She's constantly showing me things like I'm going to laugh at it and go, honey, I don't get it. I don't drink coffee. Why, why, why share that with me? If you enjoy the coffee at this church, you need to thank her. She actually one day went, you know what? There you go. Love for you. She said, you know, I'm not, I'm not jazzed with this coffee. And so she went and she made sure that we didn't have a big urn that either waters down or burns coffee. She, got these, she made sure we got these really nice coffee-making stuff. And she actually did a blind taste test of different coffees on a Saturday morning, called in select members of this congregation and asked them to taste different cups of coffee without knowing the brand and then using that incredible scientific whatever she did and she picked the right, I mean, it, it's nuts. And so my wife would totally agree that the best part of, mor- of the morning is, the uh, best part of waking up is coffee, but I'm going to disagree and share a little bit of heresy. I believe the best part of waking up is the fact that God's mercies are new every morning. Amen? Amen. Coffee is good, but new mercies are better. Why are his mercies new every morning? You ever thought about that? Listen, here's a few things we know about God. Number one, he's perfect. Everything he says, everything he does, everything he is, is perfect. So when he breathes, scripture is perfect. Every word, perfect. Another thing we know about God is he's immutable, which means never changing. Another thing we know about God is he's eternal. Exists forever, eternity in the past, forever, eternity in the future. Which means, if God were to make a single mercy, it would be perfect, it would be never changing and it would be eternal. So then why are his mercies new every morning? Why does he need new mercies? Why isn't one enough? It's not like his mercies expire like the milk. It's not like they're not applicable for different things. It's not like, well, this mercy was good for this, but you got a big thing going on, so let me make a new mercy just for that. Oh, no, no, no. This, this is in a different language. You're going to need a new mercy for that. No, no, no. His mercies are new every morning, church, because... We need them to be new every morning. Not God, we. We need his mercy to be new every morning so he makes them new every morning. Here, let me drive this point home. A little, little thought experiment I want you to join me in. Hypothetical. What if our Christian faith was a little different than what we say? What if you only get one prayer to God? Let's just say that was one of our tenets of our faith. We pray to God, but you only do it once. So you better... Plan it out. You better map out your prayer. You better think through everything you want to get because God wants to have a relationship with us and we communicate to him through prayer. But since he lives eternal in any moment, one prayer is all he needs from us. He can live in that prayer for eternity. Or how about this? What if we only read the Bible once? His truth lives forever. The Bible, the word never returns void. All we have to do is read it once because God doesn't need us to read it again and again to get the truth out there in the world, he can do that. What if we only get to read it once? Or what if we only attend church once? Don't get excited. I'm not proposing this. (laughs) But what if we only attend church once? You have one worship experience with God, and that's a part of our faith, and so you pick a good day where there's going to be no distractions, you eat some brain food, and you really get yourself in the heart of worship, and you're ready to go, and you have one worship experience, and that's it. I mean, what if... What a disappointing faith I just painted out, right? Because here's the thing, church. God doesn't need us. The Bible doesn't tell us to pray unceasingly 
because he needs us to pray unceasingly. The Bible tells us to pray unceasingly because we need to pray unceasingly. We constantly need to be in constant relationship with God. He can live in one single moment for eternity. We need it every day. The Bible doesn't tell us to read the scriptures every day to inculcate the word of truth in our minds and our bodies because he needs it. He tells us to do it every day because we need it. He doesn't tell us to attend church regularly because he needs that worship every week. He's got a, a choir of angels doing that for eternity. We need to attend church regularly so we can be in the heart of worship. And in the same way, his mercies are new every morning. Not because God needs them to be new every morning. They're new every morning because we need them to be new every morning. Amen? In the, um, in the mid-90s, I read a newspaper article in the LA Times about a woman and her parakeet. I've long since forgotten the woman's name. Please be seated. Just a few moments. But I remember the name of the parakeet, Chippy, Chippy the parakeet. And this story was not a news story, as you can guess. It's a fluff piece, a human interest story. And the, the story was about a woman who had no family. She had um, no kids, never been married, and she had this parakeet. That was her life. And this parakeet brought her a lot of joy. Uh, she would say that when she entered the room, the parakeet would always hop over to that side of the cage she was at. She'd walk across the room, the parakeet would hop back over. She said the parakeet could sing, and she swore the parakeet sang just to her. And so you could tell there's a lot of love there. A lot of, a, a lot of, uh, she got a lot out of that parakeet. Well, the story goes one day, this woman is cleaning her house, vacuuming the living room, and she knows the bottom of Chippy the parakeet's cage is dirty, could use a cleaning, and it occurs to her for the first time, she could just use the end of the vacuum cleaner attachment to clean the bottom of the cage. What? Settle down. You don't know where this is going. Don't get ahead of the story. <laughs> so she's cleaning the bottom of the birdcage without incident. When she hears the phone ring, she looks, inadvertently raises the end of the vacuum cleaner hose and sucked up Chippy the parakeet. Okay, maybe you did know where the story was going, but still, shame on you for getting ahead of a good story. <laughs> Woman loses her mind, freaks out, turns off the the vacuum cleaner, she realizes Chippy has just gone through a horrific journey through this hose and who knows what's in, what condition the bird is in. She rips open the housing. The vacuum cleaner rips open the bag. This is the late 90s before the bagless vacuum cleaners. She finds Chippy the parakeet alive, sitting on a pile of dust. And then Chippy starts to cough up some dust. And it's got dust in his eyes and I don't know those holes in his beak. Is that a nose? I don't know, but it's in there. And, and so... Chippy is gagging and she realizes, oh no, Chippy is, is suffocating to death. She grabs her parakeet, runs full speed into her kitchen, turns on the kitchen faucet, throws Chippy the parakeet in there and fire hoses this little bird, gets it real clean, puts it on the counter, and then she, uh, she sees Chippy the parakeet start to, 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 um, to shiver violently. Oh no, the bird's... Freezing to death now, so she grabs Chippy the parakeet, runs upstairs to her bedroom, pulls out the hairdryer, and flame throws this little bird until it's just a big f- ball of fluff. Good news is that Chippy survived, at least back then. It's late 90s. I'm sure Chippy's not around anymore. But at that point, Chippy survived, and um, in the newspaper article, the reporter had called the woman and asked, how is Chippy the parakeet doing? And she said, well, okay. He, he doesn't move around. He just sort of stares at the wall all day long. 
and he doesn't sing anymore. The title of that article was my favorite part. It's the title of this sermon, Sucked Up, Washed Out, Blown Away. I read that and thought, man, that's my life sometimes. <laughs> Sucked up, washed out, blown away. Look, church, being Christ followers means we don't get it easy. We will at times feel sucked out, washed out, blown away, but the good news is we have new mercies. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your new mercies. We thank you for this passage right here in Lamentations that we remember our afflictions and our wanderings the wormwood and the gall in our lives. And we say that our soul continually remembers all those bad things that happen. And sometimes our soul is bowed down by those things. But this we call the mind, God. And therefore we have hope that your steadfast love never ceases. Your mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, God. You are our portion, says our souls. Therefore we have hope in you. We pray that this would be something we come to recognize and realize and know this in our lives. As we go this new year, not everything's going to work out the way we planned it. Some things are we're going to have to adjust to. But we know that your hope, your mercies are new every morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Father cause his face to shine upon you and may the Holy Spirit bring you peace. Go with God, church.